0: Hi, this is Redeem. We give formerly incarcerated citizens the chance to share their stories, unadulterated, unashamed. This podcast is a partnership between criminal justice advocate Yasmin Barak
1: and storyteller Matt Tecatala. Each episode offers a compassionate glimpse into the life of an American on a quest for redemption, along with the difficulties they face and the victories they celebrate. With each story, we learn more about the complicated nature of self-forgiveness and what it means to live in a just society. Today, we speak with Ron Self. He's a retired United States Marine and the Executive Director of Veterans Healing Veterans. And just a heads up: today's episode touches on sensitive topics related to violence and suicide that some people might find disturbing. If you want to avoid this content, you might want to skip this one.
2: My name's Ron Self. I live in Monterey, California. Recently relocated from. San Quentin Prison seven months ago to Monterey. I'm 53, spent 23 years in prison. That's basically half of my life. Prior to that, from six years old on, um, I was in military schools, junior high, high school, college, and then military for a decade.
0: First off, Ron wants to clear up any preconceived notions that listeners might have about him.
2: I have to say that my coming to prison really had nothing to do with the military. I think a lot of people tend to, oh, you're a veteran, so you have PTSD, and that's why you went to prison.
0: The story actually begins when Ron turns six years old.
2: Six years old, dad kneels down, says, I remember it, clears the bell. It was on Davis Street in Fremont, California. Um, we are living in my grandparents' house. And he kneeled down, he put his hands on my shoulders, and he said, you were a mistake. You should have never been born. You're the reason your mother and I are getting divorced, and I'm going to Vietnam. And he left, and that's the last I saw him. Two weeks later, my mom had an emotional meltdown. They attribute it to a hysterectomy that she had. And she had some kind of meltdown, and she lunged at me with a fork, said, you're just like your goddamn father, and stabbed me in the arm with a fork. I ran out the door, stayed the night on the high school. Next morning, my grandfather picked me up. I went to live with my grandparents in Antioch, which was just wonderful, really. But, you know, at that age, for my grandparents, they loved me. I, I didn't have to go, but they asked me if I would be interested in going to a military school. It's Something that I'd, I wouldn't be able to comprehend, but it'd be a lifetime commitment. And it would be really possibly fun and I would learn things most people wouldn't learn. And I equated it to camping and Boy Scouts and whatnot. And by that time, my cousin on my dad's side came to live with me. And uh, I said, if Dave can go, then yeah, I'll go. So off I went. So what came of that is I didn't realize till much, much later in life that subconsciously, I I developed a pattern of thought where I, again, subconsciously, unconsciously sought out older authority father figures that in my mind I thought of as surrogate father figures, that if I worked hard enough, I could prove I wasn't a mistake. So in the military, where there's no shortage of that type of person, I excelled. I wasn't any braver or heroic than any of the other men I served with. I just wasn't aware of what was driving me to take the risks that I was taking. And actually, it wasn't until I came to prison that I unpacked all that and figured it out. took me 10 years of the 23 hours in prison to figure that out. And the reality is I would have never got out of prison if I couldn't articulate clearly to the board how I ended up shooting someone. And I had to go all the way back to when I was six to do that. So yeah, started when I was six. That's the short version.
1: So Ron ends up in prison.
2: He tells us he was pretty lucky, though,
1: compared to most inmates. For one, well... He's a former Marine.
2: I know how to fight. They made a mistake when I first rolled up into prison. They had me classified as white, and the white shot collar came up to me, and he gave me a knife. This is what you're going to do. You're going to stab this guy over here, and that's what you got to do. And I stabbed him with it. And it was a hard 23 years because you're having to watch your back. That's where being a Marine came in pretty handy for me. I navigated that pretty well. A lot of other people did not. But then I found my niche with veterans. And everyone kind of just like, okay, that's the guy that works with veterans. Leave him alone because veterans come in all colors. So if he's going to help all veterans, that's the excuse they needed to leave me alone.
1: By working with fellow veterans in prison, Ron was able to avoid a lot of the racial violence that pervades America's prisons.
2: Well, if you're white or perceived as white, that's who you're allowed to hang around with. If you're black, you hang around with blacks. If you're Mexican, you hang with Mexicans. If you're an other, which is islanders or Asians, there are others. And if you cross those boundaries, then then you're constantly looking over your shoulder, people trying to stab you, kill you, because they want to make examples of who do you think you are. There's a really interesting movie called Shot Caller. And I would I would tell anyone that wants to know what prison is like or that dynamic to watch that movie. They really capture the political bullshit that goes on in prison and how a decent guy could actually get a DUI, go to prison for 18 months, and end up with a 24-year or life sentence by choices you have to make to survive inside.
0: Life after prison, Ron contends, can be just as challenging to navigate, especially if you don't have a support network.
2: I've witnessed and realized that having a game plan, it, it doesn't really mean a whole lot if you don't have community support. If you don't have some kind of support outside the realm of probation officers and parole officers, it's hard to be successful. I'm watching people, unfortunately, uh, really struggle very hard with the reentry process. I truly realize how fortunate that I am to be a veteran and have at my disposal a lot of veterans benefits, full spectrum, complete wraparound services. I've completely taken advantage of that and humbled myself quite a bit, which for people that know me was a shocker. The same day that I was released, actually, and there was a gentleman sitting across from me. He would gotten released the same day, and the parole officer gave him a voucher that was good for two days at a hotel and a $150 gift card for Target, and that's all he knew, and that's all he had. No idea where he was going to get any food or anything, and I had someone pick me up, took me right to the Alameda County courthouse, got my birth certificate. Next day, I went and got my ID followed up with all the necessities. Just one thing after another, complete wraparound. Food, I had a room uh, available to me. I had my own room as soon as I got out, which is unusual. Most people parole go to. If they have a transitional house to go to, there might be seven or eight people in that room. It's about as big as this porch, which is kind of crowded. You're leaving a really crowded environment to an even more crowded environment. But the most important thing that I I realized is just having a support network, having some people that genuinely care that are interested in people that are returning back to society succeeding. If people in community were truly interested about that, I think more people might step up.
1: Ron tells us that he obtained many important resources for reentry through the Veterans Transition Center. This nonprofit organization, which has operated on the old Fort Ord complex in Monterey since 1996, provides homeless veterans and their families with food, clothing, counseling, benefits, employment training, and housing.
2: So a little back history there, when Fort Ord, which was the largest military base in U.S. history, closed down many, many years ago, there were entire communities, whole sections of town, probably as big as the one we're in right here, that were just left Vacant. Houses, everything empty. The city of Marina gave an entire street of houses to the Veterans Transition Center, who then made those houses available to formerly homeless veterans, formerly incarcerated veterans, and veteran families. So they started doing prison outreach where they would go to the prisons and they would identify people that are getting out of prison, screen them, and then offer them the ability to come to the Veterans Transition Center. It's a four-bedroom house, common kitchen area, so you have three other roommates. But you have your own room, you share a bathroom. So that was made available to me. I went there, and then not only do I have a roof over my head, but they provide clothing. They have a complete wraparound for clothing, food, Trader Joe's, every Monday and Thursday, all of that you can put in your fridge. They have a car program where you can sign up for a car. They have job program. They have mental health. The Veterans Administration is right across the street. Driver's license DMV is right up. I mean, it made it very easy for me to take advantage of all the services and just be on my feet. So after 23 years in prison, I went there for four months, got my own apartment within four months, bought a brand new truck. I'm working full time. If I wasn't a veteran, I wouldn't have that available to me at that level.
0: We asked Ron if his criminal record has presented any barriers to fully assimilating back into society.
2: There's no point in trying to disguise or hide who you are. Just Someone just Googles your name. Half the time when you're talking to someone, they're Googling your name and they know who you are. To me, it's just the best way is to have that at the forefront. It usually comes out within the first five minutes of any discussion I'm having with someone. I'm very transparent about it. And thus far, not had any negative negative reactions that I'm aware of. I've been embraced completely. Some people don't even believe that I was in prison. (laughs) I don't know. So yeah, I haven't experienced. And I'll have to say, though, a lot of that. I didn't really want to go here. But a lot of that, I realize, has to do with color of my skin and just my look. I look Caucasian. I'm actually Native American and Sicilian, half and half. But I'm I'm classified as Native American. But I realize, in large part, most of the lack of difficulty I'm having is because of my color. Where I've seen people that have the same military background as me, the same assets available to me, but are, are getting doors shut in their face and are being treated away because of color. It humbles me.
0: Run is right. According to a 2018 Prison Policy Initiative report, the unemployment rate for formerly incarcerated Black women is 43.6 percent. For white men, it's 18.4 percent. Run acknowledges his white privilege when it comes to economic opportunity, but he doesn't necessarily think that banning the box, which means prohibiting private employers from asking job applicants about their criminal records, is the most effective solution for leveling the playing field.
2: I believe in freedom of information. I believe everyone has the right to know who's around them. At the same time, if that's being used against someone to bar them from getting a job, I don't think that's appropriate. I, I'm, California's got banned the box. And I've experienced uh, a few conversations I've had recently with some, some guys that went out to get jobs where that is supposed to be in place, but yet they're being given an application that specifically has that question right there. And it's become a topic of discussion. Do you answer it? If you start getting into a discussion, as one gentleman did, that that's illegal and that's an old form, then that opens up a whole nother can of worms. It's like, okay, well, you're telling me what's illegal, not legal, and you're applying for the job. Have a good day.
1: According to Ron, regardless of whether we should have the right to access someone's record, we should not be able to use their record against them, especially if they've already made up for their mistakes.
2: If someone made a choice and they did something that caused them to go to jail in their lifetime and it was a one-time situation, it doesn't define who they are the rest of their life and that shouldn't be held against them the rest of their life. If they put in the work to make up for it, they've, they've paid for their crime, so to speak, I think they should be allowed to move on without those hurdles and those roadblocks. And again, what makes that more difficult between a Caucasian and a person of color is just that. If it was a race and me and a friend which I actually experienced this with, of color, are leaving at the same time. He's still over here, and I'm way up here just because of my color.
0: At the end of the day, Ron says, the way others perceive you doesn't necessarily need to determine how you see yourself.
2: I've come to realize that no matter how much good you do, no matter who you are, there's always going to be people that don't like you because you're doing good and you're succeeding at it. I like to think I have a thick skin, but I realize I don't. I may put on the facade like I do. But but things sting.
1: It's fair to say that Ron has spent many years looking inward to try to cope better with his own suffering. It was in prison that he discovered the root of his pain. Now, as the founder and director of Veterans Healing Veterans, he helps other incarcerated veterans who are struggling with their own trauma.
2: My intent is to help the men that are in prison, specifically veterans, because that's what I am help them identify their thinking and behavior patterns in relation to the military if there's a relationship there, and to be able to articulate that and explain what that insight is. More often than not that I found, like myself, the reason they went to prison had nothing to do with the military. By all means, the military gives you the tools to execute a crime more efficiently, maybe. But by and large, I found most of the people that I work with, veterans, can usually trace the root of the problem back to their childhood. And I think that's the case with most people. I also facilitated a victim-offender education group for five years, and I saw the same there. A lot of sexual trauma, a lot of childhood sexual trauma, abuse. Rampant, actually, among people in prison.
0: Rom believes that the genesis of a veteran's trauma can be traced to one's childhood. Their experiences in combat only make things worse.
2: Everyone. Whether you're in the military or not, has experienced and continues to experience different types of moral injury, violating your own belief, societal beliefs. When it comes to veterans, I believe veterans get just a little extra dose that most civilians don't get that's enough to push them over the abyss into suicidal ideation and criminal activity. It's just not normal to roll through a village, not unlike this city we're doing this interview in, kicking indoors, dragging families out in the middle of the night, kids screaming, women screaming. Kids, women getting shot from fear-based responses and then having to live with that. So a lot of people that go downrange, that's a term that's used for deploying overseas, a lot of people that go downrange have wives and kids. And when they're doing that, clearing buildings, and you have to do that to women and children and see the terror that you're causing in them. And then you come home and look at your kids, you're constantly reminded of the kids that you're terrifying. I don't have kids, but I know people that... um couldn't come home to their kids because of that. Because when they looked at their kids, they saw those kids. That's a type of moral injury that just people in society don't experience. In one respect, the training that you get in the military predisposes you to being capable of doing certain crimes better than most. What could lead to that is the experience of going downrange and having to do a lot of the things that go on in combat. A lot of people, nowadays, people are trying to make up for Vietnam where they were spitting on the veterans when they came back. And today, people line up to say, thank you for your service. And the reality is, most of what happens in combat is not heroic. It's just a nightmare.
1: The horrors of war leave permanent scars in the hearts and minds of our veterans. And thousands of them are unable to live with it. From the start of the Iraq War in 2003 to 2017, over 73,000 American veterans have committed suicide. This tragedy is incredibly personal for Ron.
2: There's over 24 guys killing themselves a day, 48 attempting. Yeah, most people don't aren't aware of that. Seeing a lot of your friends die, a lot of your friends take their lives, survivor's guilt. For me, I've had a few Marines die marks. I've had a few blown in half and just holding half of their body while they bleed out, it just affects you. It's just stuff that stays with you. I think my going to prison was in a way, it was like a societal suicide. Maybe I didn't have the courage to pull the trigger. Eventually I woke up, or I worked up the, whatever you want to call it, to hang myself and the rope broke. But a lot lot of what goes on with veterans is more often than not uh, a combination of what happened in the military and what happened in childhood. And the two together are just like too much the moral injury aspect of it. Yeah, I couldn't tell you how many people were sexually abused by their parents or babysitters. as children, then they join the military. The things that happen in the military, it just becomes too much. There's something about being in combat. It's the bond created, and again, I'm not a parent, but I've heard this from every parent that I've served with. Is stronger than that between a parent and a child, the bond that's created between men in combat. And then to have those men die and then come back home your real family is more like a step family. And the level of trust it's just not there like it is with the men you serve with. And so your family has in essence become strangers. So a lot of people just implode.
0: In Ron's eyes, Veterans Healing Veterans is a stand against the suicide epidemic.
2: Since I started the program that I'm working with, uh VHV, Veterans Healing Veterans. It's actually veterans selling veterans from the inside out. We just say VHV for short. I've had several guys tell me they did not commit suicide because of me. And I I honestly don't know what to do with that. But it motivates me to just keep trying to do what I do. I spend money on guys I really can't afford to spend on them. But when they just get out, I I just want to try and help them. So yeah, I I just try and just help guys get back on their feet and help guys not commit suicide. It's easy to lose hope in prison. For veterans, because I mean at one point we were all trusted to carry a gun in defense of this nation and we violated that trust. Um, I don't know that I could ever regain that trust, but I'm okay spending the rest of my life trying. So how I do that is trying to make sure other veterans don't, can get over what they've done that caused them to go to prison and maybe help other people from going to prison. I don't know if that's reform, it's it's just trying to help veterans.
1: Even after his workday ends... Ron still manages to support veterans. Service is a lifestyle for him.
2: My hobby, my interest is helping the guys that are just coming out. I like to take them kayaking. I'm an outdoorsy type person. So I find a lot of my time, and actually it falls under somatic therapy. So it's an excuse for me to take the guys out, you know, get eight, nine guys and go out kayaking. And it really helps with the confidence building, teamwork. Getting guys' confidence back. Ladies, too. We have ladies in the program. Bike riding, camping, scuba diving is the one we just did. And it's Monterey. No matter where you're at, it's a 1,000 yards to the water.
0: But Ron also finds peace in solitude.
2: Getting in my truck and driving. Just getting in the truck and being able to drive. I like going to the gym. So I get up about 5, go to the gym, and I have to do physical rehab for the surgeries I had. And that's that's probably my favorite part. I think there's something in the in the physical activity. My whole life training in the military, it's been learning how to think clearly in extreme physical activity during extreme stress. That's when I'm thinking my clearest. so that's usually when I start planning out, oh, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or ah, and there's the answer. I have to go to the gym for that. So really, I, I would say if, if my favorite part of the day would be that. And if I had to look forward to something, I know you didn't ask that, but I'm going to answer that for you. It would be falling in love and meeting the right person before I die. That's it.
0: That was Executive Director of Veterans Healing Veterans and former U.S. Marine Ron Self. Thanks for listening to Redeem. We'll see you next time.